0: Hey, everyone. Law enforcement across the state have been very upset with two bills that passed in the most recent legislative session this spring. Bills that took effect July 25th, House Bill 1310 and House Bill 1054. I'm going to try to not spend much time talking about them here in detail. That's what our guest is for. Her name is Anoka Harat of ACLU of Washington. She is the Police Practices and Immigration Council. We also talk a little bit about immigration at the very end. I kind of slide it in there. But police practices are one of her main focuses, and obviously it's been what she's been focused on a lot uh, given the year we've just had. There's a pretty good chance if you read a story about the police getting upset about these new laws, there was a quote from her saying, wait a second, guys, here's what the law actually says. So I'm going to try to maximize the time we get to bask in her brilliance uh, by minimizing the time I hold forth here at the beginning. But, you know, we'll see how that goes. I feel like brevity is, a, is an intention I set. I have a hard time actually meeting. I'm a bit too chatty, a little too lugubrious, but we're going to try. So let's start broad. Politicians almost never, like almost, almost never undo laws that were seen as tough on crime, even when the laws in retrospect are recognized to be harmful. One of the stories I reported that had the biggest impact on me personally was about a high school kid in Spokane who had been born with HIV, but was statistically at zero risk of transmitting it to other people. And he was statistically at zero risk because the HIV drugs we have are really, really good at suppressing the virus. It doesn't cure it completely, but it suppresses it to a point that we don't even have tests that can detect it. Anyway, he made a bad decision in 2010. He did not disclose his status to his partner, which is the law. You legally have to disclose that you're HIV positive if you're HIV positive. And he didn't do that. Again, these are teenagers. When the girl's parents found out, they had him arrested, sent to jail. He ended up serving a couple years in prison, and then he had to register as a sex offender after he got out. He could have gotten as much as 27 years in prison, the equivalent of a life sentence in Washington State, because that's the way the law was written. It was written as a first-degree assault charge with like, aggravating circumstances, if I remember correctly, as close as you can get to a life sentence. The law was passed in the early 90s during the HIV panic, when we didn't have effective treatments, to criminalize unprotected sex because there was this fear. Again, it was a moral panic that only ever happened in a couple, a handful of cases— where people were intentionally trying to infect people with HIV. The law, it turns out, did not only fail to prevent HIV transmission, but public health officials said after 20 years of talking to populations, people actually affected, said it stigmatized and even prevented people from getting tested in the first place for fear of being prosecuted by this law. They didn't want to get tested because they didn't want to know because the moment you know, the law applies to you. (laughs) So not only did the law do no good? It did harm. And by 2010, it had no defenders that I could find in all my reporting, months of reporting, and yet it was still in the books and continued to ruin people's lives. By the time I was looking at it in 2012, there had kind of been a rash of cases where people were once again getting prosecuted for just having HIV. And in in addition to the law not being effective, would it surprise you to learn that there was a massive racial disparity in who got prosecuted? Just thinking about the stereotype of who gets AIDS and who doesn't, or who gets HIV or who doesn't, you might expect it to be like white gay men being prosecuted by this law. No, it actually wasn't. It was straight black men and not just straight black men, but there was a notable trend of straight black men whose partners were white women. There was an implicit bias and racism toward interracial couples and and straight black men disproportionately suffered. So like I said, I spent two months digging as deeply into the story as I could in 2012 talked with activists, health experts from all over the U.S., and I honestly thought the law would never be overturned. Many activists were actually focusing on non-prosecution rather than overturning the laws because they were like, we're never going to win here, so let's just try to get people to not prosecute. But then it happened, last year actually. Just as the world was shutting down, March 19th, 2020, Inslee signed a law not completely erasing the statute, because that would go too far, apparently, but turning it from first degree assault and a sex crime to a simple misdemeanor, pretty much the lowest offense there is. These laws were created in almost every state and most are still in effect. A few years ago, a homeless man with HIV in Idaho got 10 years for spitting at a cop, spitting at a cop. It wasn't even clear if he hit him. So the Washington change was a huge win for people who had been criminalized for having a disease. It was also a complete shock when it actually happened, at least to me, because these things happened so rarely. We're talking about state violence today, not HIV criminalization, but I just wanted to give the clearest example I had from my personal reporting to illustrate how hard it is for politicians to walk back state power once it's given to authorities. It just doesn't happen. There has to be a really good reason and a pretty intense groundswell. So that makes the reforms we're going to talk about today against police violence in the last legislative session extremely significant. They aren't perfect. They're actually kind of modest, despite some of the hyperbole you might have heard from law enforcement officials. And we'll discuss all that in a second here. And while they are modest, it's still too much for many law enforcement, especially in eastern Washington, east of the Cascades. In preparation for these laws going into effect, a number of senior officials, including Spokane County Sheriff Ozzie Konezovich, Spokane Police Chief Craig Meidel, Spokane Valley Police Chief Dave Ellis, well, they got together and they did the most serious thing you can do in a situation like this. They held a press conference. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was sitting here planning, I was building this up to to share audio of the press conference, but I actually went back and listened to it again. I listened to it when it happened, and then I went back and listened to it again, and I just, I care about you guys too much to do that. It's an awful, awful press conference. A lot of complaining, a lot of disinformation, a lot of dissembling. It's incredibly boring. It's not even interesting. And there's very little substance. So what I'm going to do instead is sum up some of the major claims by quoting Meidel from the press tour he took last spring to keep the bill from passing. So we'll look briefly at that, and then we'll get to our guest. In an op-ed of the Spokesman Review from February, Meidel wrote, quote, House Bill 1054 significantly limits or disallows many tools that law enforcement agencies across the state rely on to bring perpetrators of crime to justice. Chemical agents with no permanent or long-term effects. Just to break in here in editorialize, he's talking about tear gas, which is outlawed by the Geneva Convention in war zones, but is still legal to use on civilian populations in the U.S. Chemical agents with no permanent or long-term effects used to extract violent criminals from barricaded locations or to quell destructive rioters. Gone. Police canine teams, a vital tool in helping police track and locate evasive persons, recover contraband, and find missing persons. No longer allowed. Neck restraints, often confused with the chokehold, are a highly effective de-escalation tactic that has never resulted in a serious injury or death in Spokane. No longer authorized. This is the one we're going to be focusing on, by the way. Protective equipment like helmets and munition suppressors, essential for effective police work and officer safety eliminated with the stroke of a pen. First of all, Meidel commits a number of crimes against the English language in this op-ed, including one, two, three, four ellipses in a single paragraph. Every time I did a long pregnant pause, that was him adding an ellipse for no reason into a a, a written op-ed. It's not the way ellipses are used, buddy. He continues then, in the absence of these valuable tools and tactics already regulated and only authorized in specific and limited circumstances, Officers will have to revert to other tactics that may put them and others at greater risk. Removal of intermediate interventions leaves officers fewer options to safely resolve dangerously volatile situations. Arrests will take longer to accomplish. Injuries to officers and suspects will increase. And unfortunately, so may the prospect of more officer-involved shootings. What? What's up, dude? What does he mean if cops can't use neck restraints, for example, it might result in more officer-involved shootings? Here's another quote from August where he's quoted by a reporter. Meidel said the fewer intermediate force tools available to officers when trying to arrest a resistive subject, the smaller the gap between no force and deadly force. This gives officers fewer options, and that can lead to more injuries to officers and offenders and likely higher levels of force that would otherwise not occur. So let's just strip away the obscurantist and didactic language here. He's saying, in no uncertain terms, if we can't strangle people, we're going to have to shoot them. Sorry. And while Meidel asserts strangulation is safe, scientists and doctors disagree with him. Just to be clear, the tactic we're talking about is called lateral vascular restraints. Meaning you're not choking somebody from the front and cutting off their, the air going into their windpipe. You're choking them from the sides and restricting the flow of blood into their arteries. You're cutting off the flow of blood to their brain. That's the tactic. Everybody agrees that is the tactic. You are cutting off the flow of blood to someone's brain to make them blink out, black out, choke them out, so they stop resisting. Mytl is saying this is safe and then goes one further and says, hey, it prevents us from shooting people. That's cool. But again, scientists, doctors, police surgeons even disagree. In a December 2020 perspective in the medical journal JAMA Neurology, a group of neurologists came out against the practice pretty forcefully. One of them. God, I'm going to have to look it up here. Damn it. Massachusetts General Hospital neurologist Altaf Sadi, MD, wrote, As a neurologist, I know there is never a scenario where stopping the flow of blood and oxygen to the brain is medically appropriate. What shocked me most was that much of the literature supporting these techniques hides behind medical language, but lacks a real understanding of the pathophysiology of the significant harm they cause to an individual. As neurologists, we are taught that, quote, time is brain because there's such a rapid loss of human nervous tissue when the flow of blood and oxygen to the brain is reduced or stopped. Time is brain. Think about that. And it's not just ivory tower researchers who feel this way. The Washington Post quoted Dr. Bill Smock, a police surgeon with the Louisville Metro Police Department, saying, there is no such thing as making it safe with proper training. Any pressure to the neck is dangerous and can cause serious physical injury, rips to the artery, damage to the internal organs, stroke, and death. I don't care what you call pressure to the neck. It is all strangulation and it is all dangerous. Later in that spokesman article from August, Chief Meidel tried to have it both ways, saying it was essential and effective, but that they used it, quote, sparingly and with extreme discretion. But in May of 2021, a few months earlier, a group of researchers used the Spokane Police Department as a case study on neck restraints, choosing the department partially because SPD had, quote, used them quite regularly, (laughs) used them quite regularly, 230 times in eight years. Over 28 times a year, they had cut off, disrupted, blocked blood flowing to someone's brain. That's twice a month someone got choked out in Spokane before this new law ended the practice in July. The spokesman had reported that neck restraints were the number one use of force between 2013 and 2018. We strangled more people in Spokane than we tased. But now the SPD can't do that anymore. And they also can't use tear gas and a number of other things they aren't happy about. They say taking these tactics away will make everybody less safe. But the Washington Coalition of Police Accountability, which supported the law, believes we have literally written safety, care of the person, into the new laws. They wrote in their press release, HB 1310 is a foundational piece of legislation that sets the stage for all other police reforms. It removes the existing authority for officers to use any amount of force necessary to make an arrest and replaces it with a reasonable care standard requiring officers to de-escalate, use less lethal alternatives when possible, and use only the minimum amount of force necessary. So we're going from reasonable force, which I'm sure you've heard a million times, to reasonable care, putting the emphasis not on force, but on care. Doesn't that seem more reasonable? We'll talk about all of this and more, including why word choice is extremely important in the law, since laws are just a bunch of words we all agree to follow, with Anoka Harat, Police Practices and Immigration Council for the ACLU of Washington, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. And Okoharat, thank you so much for coming on range.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you work at the ACLU. Um, there's a big new, well, there's actually a couple police reform bills that have just gone into effect. They were passed in the most recent legislative session. And I thought we could maybe just start there. Like there was, this was an incredibly busy legislative session. It seemed like I I had a hard time keeping track of everything and not everything got passed that was aspired to, but a couple of bills around sort of law enforcement reform broadly did. So maybe we could just take those one at a time. The first is, and I think this is the one that maybe most people are talking about, but I might be wrong about that. uh, House bill 1310. What does that do? and, And what does it not do?
1: Sure. So HB 1310 is a use of force bill. So what it does is it says when police officers can use force and when they use force, how they have to use that force. And what it does is it requires that officers use reasonable care when they engage with members of the public. And it also limits when officers can use lethal force, so deadly force. And it says that officers can only use deadly force when necessary to protect life which I think a lot of people might assume has always been the current standard, but it's actually pretty far from it.
0: That could obviously include their own lives, correct? Yes. Yeah, it is kind of shocking to me that that's not the standard already applied. Maybe I didn't know that either. (laughs) Whether or not it was (laughs) adhered to, I kind of assumed that would be the standard. You can only use lethal force to meet a threat of lethal force, but that has not been the case historically? That's
1: not, and before this law was in place, the prior law that even addressed use of force at all, um, what it said was that in order to effectuate an arrest, police can effectuate the arrest by any means necessary. So it was just a blank check on using force. And so this law repeals that prior law okay. and replaces it with this reasonable care standard and this requirement to have necessity in order to use lethal force.
0: Is there like a legal definition? What does reasonable care mean?
1: Well, it actually came from a Washington Supreme Court case a couple of years ago that recognized that um, there's an expectation for all government officials, including police, to use reasonable care when they interact with members of the public. And that really applied to all all policing, investigation, um, use of force, et cetera. And so this bill really sort of takes a look at that as it applies to using physical force against somebody. And, um, and so, and within the bill, there are examples of what that means. And so it means to use reasonable, reasonable, care means that you are going to deescalate as best as you can, um, that you are going to use the minimal amount of force, you know, and to, to end using force when the necessity for that force ends to that, you will try to use less lethal weapons, you know, and, and really, again, only use deadly force when necessary to protect, um, someone's life, the officers, a witness or the person themselves.
0: Forgive me for a second, but you're a lawyer, so I think you'll be okay with this because I was a philosophy major. So I think a lot about like this specific meanings of words and like up to this point, we hear a lot about reasonable force, right, applied. It strikes me that reasonable care almost shifts the focus from how much force can I use that's reasonable to how much care do I have to take that's reasonable To sort of maybe avoid using force or whatever. Is that too fine of a distinction for legal reasoning or is that the intent that we're trying to sort of shift the focus from what's the right amount of force to what's the all of the, the sort of care that I can exhaust before I might have to resort to that?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, that really hit the nail on the head. I mean, last year, last summer, we saw thousands of people showing up to call for a change to policing. Yeah. You know, a change to uh, police brutality, a change to racial profiling. You know, a change to holding police accountable. And so what this law really does is it really does try to shift away from police using violence. And that's because police have been trained on de-escalation for the past decade. I-940, which was passed by voters um, a couple of years ago, shifted focus on police training to, you know, to accommodate crisis situations, you know, to to take into consideration people who are in crisis and to treat them differently. Um, and what this law does is it, it just puts that training that officers have gotten into the law and and codifies it to make it so that they're held to that standard. Right. And, and that is idea, you know, to build in more time, more distance, you know, more, more thought into policing. So it's not just split second decisions and and using force as sort of the first approach, but rather to emphasize de-escalation over confrontation.
0: Right. So the idea is like, we've, we've tried the training route. Like we've tried the soft route of like, if we, if we just train this in, it'll become part of the standard and maybe it seems like that has not actually held true so now it's maybe time to create a law that codifies that as a standard is that about right that's right okay okay so then house bill 1054 what does that do and not do
1: so hb 1054 is a bill about police tactics and so it takes some certain tactics totally off the table okay. you know it, it banned Chokeholds and neck restraints, and it bans certain military equipment from being used. It also limits when police can use tear gas, for example, oh, okay. um, and how they can use tear gas. It also limits when police can shoot at moving vehicles or engage in vehicle pursuits. And really, what it did, and the intent behind this, is to look at the tactics that have been more harm, most harmful, sort of most egregious. To look at the tactics that have been used. Disproportionately against people of color, Mm -hmm. and to take a step back and say, you know, do we need these methods anymore? Let's emphasize instead less lethal alternatives.
0: That's fascinating. And I think one of the things that kind of came to mind or that was made apparent by the death of George Floyd last year was that that's not an uncommon restraint. After that happened, there were a number of instances of. People documenting Spokane police using that sort of force one time in Riverfront Park just for a guy who was maybe creating a mild disturbance in public. They ended up on his neck uh, and not on the back of the shoulders the way they talked about how that was the intended move, but literally on his neck, documented by a, of just a random passerby. And so it seems clear that these are widely used tactics and widely accepted within the law enforcement community and. I mean, in the case of our police chief, he said on numerous occasions that more people are going to get hurt if cops weren't allowed to do chokeholds. And he left that intentionally vague. But it kind of felt to me like he was saying, if we can't choke people out, we're going to have to shoot more people. It was almost treating something like a chokehold as a de-escalation tactic in the mind of the boss of, you know, 300 cops in Spokane.
1: Sure. So chokeholds and the broader category of neck restraints are really problematic. And part of it is because they're really easy to do improperly. And so the neck restraint, which is supposed to block the air passage and make someone sort of just pass out, it's supposed to be done in six seconds. Right. And if you hold it for longer than six seconds, then there is the risk of actually causing um, long term damage to to people's vital organs resulting in death, et cetera. Brain um, damage. Brain damage, exactly, is is really high. And so what we found is that in Washington state, that departments were not being trained consistently on these uh, tactics, that they were not being used consistently, um, that they were sort of prone to racial bias. And because it is such a dangerous tactic that has been used incorrectly, too often, it was time to just to to ban it. And I think, you know, it's a knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, okay, well then, then your only other option is to shoot people. Well, that's not true. Again, officers have been trained in de-escalation. There are less lethal alternatives. There are more tools in the toolkit.
0: Right at the beginning of all this, I remember a lot of people focused on, I think what's, what's Cory Booker's city uh, in uh, New Jersey? Yeah they sort of completely rethought their police force. And there was that video of like 10 cops sort of walking a guy who was brandishing a knife sort of out of harm's way. And eventually I can't remember if they tased him or whatever, but it seems like that's what these laws are designed to go for. And there's a lot of pushback around, like that's not the policing we're used to or that unnecessarily limits police officers or maybe puts them in harm's way. But again, that that resolved just fine and and the Citro woolly stuff did as well. So I don't know if there's a question there. It seems like what we're seeing with this pushback, and I want to get into more detail on that in a second, is like there's just a cultural expectation that law enforcement agencies have had, and that obviously permeates training and permeates real on-the-job training. That because this is such a dangerous job, statistics suggest that it's getting less and less dangerous over time. But because it's so dangerous, we need to have every tool at our disposal. I don't know what the question is there, but do you have like a response to that, or like how does that does that strike you as correct? Or <laughs>
1: I guess one thing um, that I heard a lawmaker say that I thought was really um, on point was, you know, he said officers used to use whips and cudgels and swords and, you know, and at a certain point as a society, we said, you know, those tools are not don't meet our standards of what is acceptable. And um, I think, you know, given how our country witnessed the choking of George Floyd last year. And then in Washington state right around that time also, you know, saw the case of uh, Manny Ellis who was put into a neck restraint was choked to death as well that we're saying, you know, enough, enough is enough. Yeah. And we have to find other ways to be able to treat people fairly and um, to limit the amount of violence and harm that people have to encounter.
0: Yeah. I was going to mention something about tear gas use. I'm glad that's getting restricted because it seems like, so two things, one in Spokane and one, something I seem to observe in coming out of Seattle was like, in Seattle, the police kept saying, okay, we're going to stop using tear gas. We're going to stop using tear gas. But then it seemed to kind of keep happening even after they said they were going to stop doing it. And so I'm guessing, again, codifying these laws is going to sort of more sort of seriously restrict that where it seemed like it was almost like a negotiating tactic with protesters to something that sort of is going to have strict rules now. And, and that strikes me as like a really good thing because there was a young person in Spokane, they got hit with a, it might've not been a, a tear gas canister. It might've been a less lethal bullet, but it just shattered his jaw and his jaw was wired shut for three or four months. So does that, does 1054 limit stuff like the less lethal munitions, which I don't even like that. That seems like I looked up the, the ordinance that they used for those things and the the specs for it. say so you have to, you're supposed to bounce those less lethal munitions off the ground and then into people. To, I'm guessing, to lessen the velocity. So it's like if you don't do that or you do it wrong or you hit them, I don't know. It, it, these aren't really less lethal munitions.
1: You know The ban on tear gas was something that, that you know I'm glad to see the restrictions. We would have, of course, preferred a complete ban on yeah, tear gas. Right. Tear gas has been banned by the Geneva Convention for use in war because um, it's a chemical irritant and it's very hard to control and to target. So what we were seeing in Seattle was that, and actually the ACLU of Washington sued on behalf of Black Lives Matter and um, a number of protesters and, and people who weren't involved in the protest at all um, for the use uh, of tear gas and other chemical irritants and, um, and the court enjoined or prohibited law enforcement for using um, tear gas in particular. And what we were seeing is that people who were far from the protest, not involved in all yeah. that the tear gas was able to come into their apartment buildings. And, right. and that's like an incredibly dense area, uh, Capitol Hill where the tear gas was being deployed. Right. Um, so it is really harmful. And um, there are some jurisdictions like the Los Angeles police department in LA. They have not used tear gas since the sixties. Yeah, you know, they stopped right. using tear gas instead they use alternatives. And you're right that, you know, the, the way those, bullets, etc. are supposed to be used is they're not supposed to be directed at people. (laughs) They're supposed to be directed at the ground. So for all of these, there are ways to misuse them, where officers are not using their training for how to use them. And, you know, and can and should be held accountable for that.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up L.A. because one part of what I want to sort of get at here is the press conference that a bunch of local law enforcement, including our sheriff and our police chief held, you know, with like 30 other law enforcement officials was, I think, designed to show a unified front that like, every, you know, every law enforcement agency in, in the country believes the things that we're sort of believed or would, would have similar concerns about these laws. But as you pointed out, that L.A. Uh, county hasn't used tear gas in what, 60 years at this point. So why are law enforcement pushing back on this? We've already talked about that a little bit, but then have you seen sort of differences or have you seen more, uh, certain jurisdictions push back more than others?
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's really sort of varied across the state. There has been pushback. There have been some departments that say, oh, we're, not, we're just not going to show up to crisis calls, for example. Yeah. There have been others. But then at the same time, there have been police chiefs and sheriffs who say, yeah, you know what? These are we're going to follow the law. Yeah. We're going to implement these things. Um, this isn't too different than what we've been doing, um, because these laws are all based on best practices, not just from other Washington state jurisdictions, but also across the country. This is sort of the future of policing anyways, is where policing was going and where training has been going, et cetera. And so it just puts it, it just codifies it. And um, the criminal justice training center, who is the police academy for our state, they've been putting out good information, um, trainings and, and training has already been sort of aligned with the laws and continue to really sort of, serve the laws and make sure that, um, officers are trained up yeah. to best serve
0: our state. I don't want to make this about partisanship because I don't really, I don't know that it is or not. Does, does it strike you that the f- jurisdictions that have, cause it strikes me that this, this the press conference was like Spokane and a bunch of pretty rural jurisdictions. Uh, and then I had not heard Seattle PD, Or even really Tacoma, which is a city about the size of Spokane, but maybe a little bit more urban, maybe had like sort of more of a history of these sorts of protests, certainly more diverse than Spokane is. I hadn't seen them come out as as sort of strongly uh, skeptical of these laws. As others have, so have you. Have you noticed any patterns in the places that are like, yeah, we've already been doing this, or maybe as a result of either the way they implement best practices or the way the community pushes back against the sort of like over overhanded uh, force?
1: You know, that's a good question. I haven't seen any patterns or like a rural urban divide. Uh, I have seen a lot of jurisdictions. You know, city level, but then also county level. Use their social media platforms to sort of push back yeah, yeah, <laughs> on yeah. these laws. And um, you know, I think what's one thing that's been interesting about that is that a lot of the examples they give actually demonstrate successes of the law and show how right. officers did take the time to de-escalate, and because of that, people there was no harm. You know, nobody nobody was there's was no use of force. You know, and still they were able to get the person back to safety. or to arrest, arrest somebody, you know, et cetera. So um, I think that I guess I'm not surprised by the pushback at all. You know, I think change is difficult and, and um, what we demanded, what people demanded was changing to policing. And the, these laws don't bring symbolic change. They are actually bringing systemic change and that takes time and yeah, change in doing business as normal, you know, business as usual. So I think it shows that things are working, that, <laughs> that things are changing.
0: You specifically have said, I believe this was in the Seattle Times, but, but you were quoted as saying that cops are, quote, dangerously misinterpreting the new laws when they sort of push back or they threaten to just not show up and stuff. Can you explain to me like what you mean by that? What do you mean in dangerously misinterpreting?
1: Sure. So um, there is nothing in the laws at all that say that in 1310 that says that you can't show up to any kind of call, right. you know, it's a use of force bill. So it only triggers when there's someone that you could use force on, <laughs> right. you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't even, um, it, it just doesn't even address showing up to calls. And so we saw across the state, a number of different departments saying, Oh, we're just not going to show up to these calls, you know, oh, we're, and then blaming the laws for that. And I think that is dangerous. I think that's a misinterpretation of the laws because there's nothing in the law that says you can't show up. And I think the reason it's dangerous is because it sends a signal to sort of the most vulnerable um, people in crisis, people who are surviving domestic violence, et cetera, that they're on their own, Yeah. you know, that um, law enforcement is not going to be prioritizing public safety. And so I think that is dangerous to people who are most impacted. And I think it, it also, it seems like there's been a lot of focus on communications rather than on training and, and, <laughs> right. and working with their departments to figure out, you know, how best to implement these laws.
0: It just strikes me on the one hand as like dereliction of duty to me, I've mostly been in the creative space. So it's not like I've had particularly, you know, jobs where like I was necessary, but I even think of like, you know, I can't imagine a maintenance worker at the city responding to a change that might make his job a little bit harder by saying, I'm not going to respond to water main breaks anymore or something like that. I can't imagine my brother, who's a steam fitter respond, you know, something that was designed to keep his job more safe, but might make it a little bit more I don't even know if difficult is the right word, just something that sort of is an an additional consideration that needs to be added to keep everybody safe. You can't imagine those people walking off the job. And then to your point, like I hadn't even thought about this, but like if your main institutional response is to tweet about it rather than (laughs) sort of implement training procedures, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you a a law enforcement agency or are you not? Because like one of the things that about the, I'm just going to go off for a second because this just triggered something. So I apologize. But like, we, the, the whole Geneva convention thing came up with a tear gas and that was something that local media asked the, I believe it was police chief Meidel about and police chief Meidel's response was we obey the laws of Washington state and the constitution of the United States. We we're not subject to the Geneva convention and it's like, okay, bro, fair enough. Like if you think that we should have less strict rules for our streets than our battlefield, I guess that's fine. But now we've actually passed those laws and you're complaining about that too.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think you, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. You know, it's like our military has found alternatives. We shouldn't be using these military grade equipment on local communities. You know, it sends right. the wrong signal. It sends right. the wrong message. And it makes our streets feel like occupied territory. Yeah. You know,
0: one specific thing back to the the misinterpretation or the not showing up thing you were quoted as talking about the Washington state patrol, Said that one of the new laws prevented them from chasing somebody who was driving the wrong way on I five and and then hit another car before running away, and you were like, "We're talking about again reasonable suspicion. So like driving the wrong way still constitutes reasonable suspicion. It's not like it requires a massive amount of extra credulity or something for these laws, right? There's no there's no real change in the way that you're supposed to sort of approach or." suspicion or is there how does how has that sort of been nuanced by these laws if at all
1: no i mean reasonable the, the legal standards of reasonable suspicion and probable cause have been around for decades law enforcement has been trained on those legal standards um you know so that hasn't changed yeah 1310 says that in order to use physical force on someone you have to have probable cause and that is a shift before there wasn't sort of a limitation on when you can use, you, can, you could sort of use force, not a statewide limitation at least. Yeah. And, you know, the idea behind that is that, that we don't want, and what we had seen and so many examples are uh, of people who've been killed by police, you know, from Tommy Lay to Stonechild, Chief Stick to uh, John T. Williams. Like so many examples of people who had been killed when they weren't even committing a crime you know, they were just going about their business and that they had been killed by law enforcement. And so the idea with that probable cause standard is to say, in order to use force on someone, you have to have some information that they have been engaged in criminal conduct, you know, that they have committed a crime. You can't just harm someone when they aren't doing anything, when they aren't committing a
0: crime. Well, and even if they are committing a crime, but they're not endangering anybody's life, you can't. So example, I don't know. Are you familiar with the, Shonto Pete case. This was in Spokane. It was a number of years ago. It was probably over a decade ago. I'll need to look that up, but he happened to steal an off-duty police officer's car as the guy was close to it. And he got shot in the back of the head as he was driving away. And that was ruled a reasonable use of force and he didn't die. He survived, but he's, he's significantly changed by it with that. Something like that would, I would assume is not permissible under this new law anymore. You can't just fire into a car that's driving away.
1: That's right. There was um, in 1054, there was a restriction on vehicle, uh, on shooting at moving vehicles. And so um, it would limit when officers can shoot at moving vehicles and without. Knowing right. all the details, it sounds like that would have been a, a situation that um, law enforcement couldn't right. have shot at that vehicle.
0: All right. So we, I, I feel like we've got a pretty good sense of the a, a deep enough sense of the contours here. I know it's kind of the ACLU's job to get into the middle of the stuff. But why, why do you why was it important for y'all to sort of weigh in on this? Because that's kind of what what led to this conversation was you kind of pushed back to the pushback a little bit. And and so why was that important for ACLU to weigh in on?
1: Um, sure. I, I say a number of reasons. I mean we ground our work in the lived experience of people who've been sort of directly impacted by this. And so we've been members of the Washington Coalition on Police Accountability, which centers the voices of family members of those who've been, who've lost loved ones to police violence. And, you know, as the American civil liberties union, we've weighed in on policing since our founding a hundred years ago, yeah. you know, and and we are always grappling with this idea of protecting people's civil liberties while protecting public safety. And these laws, um, have limited when our government can harm us, can physically harm us. And police um, have the authority to take away liberty and to take away our lives. And with that level of authority must come um, a lot of responsibility. And these laws restrict when they can use that force. And so it was a win for civil liberties to say that, you know, our government can't harm us. <laughs> can't even touch us, you know, without, without adequate reason, without adequate information, yeah. you know, and, um, and we think that these laws uphold those civil liberties and increase and expand those civil liberties while also maintaining public safety. These are best
0: practices.
1: We are looking at laws that will result in better outcomes in policing and in public safety, and will make it easier for everyone to go home at night
0: whether they end up being justified or not, anytime you take someone's life on the street like this, that is an extrajudicial killing. It might be a justified violation of due process or whatever, because it's the, somebody's life is in danger. I'm not going to argue the merits of that or how often that needs to happen or if any of those individual things were, were justified, but it is it is an extrajudicial killing. And one of the things that we're sort of, our country, again, back to these people who love talking about the constitution so much, one of the, the things that the constitution really does sort of outline and then subsequent jurisprudence is this idea that like before the government can do anything to you, it really needs to prove its case in a court of law. And then there's processes for appealing to make sure that it got it right the first time and the second time. And, and it just strikes me that in a especially in a place like Washington, where the death penalty is still technically on the books, but we haven't done it in a really long time, maybe in my entire life. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's like, we still seem pretty comfy with law enforcement killings and certainly the, the broader use of force.
1: That's right. And actually the Washington State Supreme Court struck down the death penalty because of the racial disparities right. that were right. um, so evident in those cases. And it's true, I mean, on average, law enforcement in Washington state kill between 34 and 40 people a year. Wow. And um, we have already seen the success of these laws, that that number has already started to change. I mean, there was earlier this year, at the very beginning of the this year, there were about three killings a month, and that has tapered off. And so now the number of people who've been killed by police is about a half of what it was last year, and about a third of what it was in twenty. 19. Wow. And um, so we're already seeing that officers are thinking twice before using legal force. And that's the law is working as they should.
0: And that, that has not contributed, just to be clear. And I, if you don't have the stats on this, it's not like a bunch more police officers have been getting hurt in the interim or killed.
1: I mean, I don't know what the statistics on, on that is or how that has changed. So I should probably not
0: comment on that. And and to be honest, it's kind of too soon to tell, right? These laws just went into effect. So part of the, the hand wringing is all theoretical. Okay. So then let's, let's move forward to like a little bit of future thinking, like from y'all's perspective at the ACLU, are these laws adequate? Did these laws as they got passed go far enough or do they need to go further?
1: A number of the priorities that we had for uh, policing laws were passed, which was which was a great victory. And and there's still more work to be done, especially around accountability and holding police accountable once they if they do violate people's rights. Uh, I think there were a couple of bills around issues of accountability that didn't make it across the finish line. That it would be great to to have our state push forward.
0: You might not do enough lobbying to be able to answer this question, but. Did you get a sense from lawmakers that they were happy with themselves or that they thought this was enough? Is it, I guess my question is, was that a situation of them running out of time or maybe not quite having the votes this session? Are they going to keep pushing for this or is it going to take pressure from, from the ACLU, from the Washington coalition for police accountability from normal people to get that accountability stuff really built in? Maybe the answer is both. You
1: know, they lawmakers were really busy this session. So there was, um, over 20 bills relating to policing and they passed 14 of them (laughs) that were related to policing at all. So, you know, and so, so they did a lot of work and um, the work will continue. And I think there is more work to be done. I think it was just a matter of time, (laughs) you know, and and there's so much that needs to change and has needed to change around policing. And so, um, you know, this is really the beginning.
0: You, you might not have this stuff in front of you, so feel free to like get back to me about it. But we like to do action items on this show and see, uh, are there a couple pieces that didn't quite make it through that, that I could like let people know after the fact to reach out to our the legislators to maybe put back on the table in the next session?
1: Sure. So there was HB 1202, the Peace Officer Accountability Act. And um, maybe your listeners have been hearing about qualified immunity, which is right. sort of this legal doctrine that has been an obstacle to holding officers accountable once yeah. they have actually um, been shown to violate someone's rights. Right. Um, and so 12, HB 1202 would create a a way to sue officers and departments um, if they have harmed somebody and without you. Without allowing that defense of qualified immunity. And so that has been, yeah, one of the major obstacles to police accountability. And so so pushing that bill forward, if uh, folks can contact their lawmakers and and support that bill, HB 1202, we'd love to see that one cross the finish line.
0: I mean, the answer as with so many of these is probably both and, but does, do you have a sense, and even if it's just sort of your speculation, if you feel comfortable, that's fine, I mean, these are pretty definitive laws. It's pretty clear they're constitutional. Do you have a sense of whether the response from law enforcement officials was an attempt to undermine the current legislation, undermined public perception of the current legislation, or maybe also an attempt to kneecap future legislation to sort of be like, okay, we gave you this. Oh my God, it's going to be so hard, but definitely don't pass HB 1202, for example.
1: Um, you know, I think there are, like I said, these are big laws that passed. They go to systemic change. Um, I think there might have been a couple places where the law could be more clear. And I think lawmakers are willing to change some language around that in future, in next session. Um, But those clarifying amendments are pretty narrow. And I think, um, you know, I just hope that law enforcement sort of shifts to really implementing and making sure that these laws, which intend to keep people safer, really sort of meet the intent
0: as we go forward as citizens, and we always want to say that, like, no matter what you do with this sort of stuff, be safe, don't endanger yourself. But George Floyd wasn't the first person killed on camera, but it certainly, whatever for whatever reason, really sparked something serious. And it does seem like people recording incidents when they see them has become a pretty vital part of moving this conversation forward. And I don't know, obviously, the ACL, you guys couldn't do your work in sort of specific cases without without that kind of documentation. Yeah, as an organization, do you have advice for people on? like how they can sort of make sure that we hold people accountable to these laws.
1: You know, I thought um, during the Derek Chauvin trial, when um, we heard from the folks who did actually take that video footage of George Floyd's murder, you know, hearing them talk about how they wish they had done more. You know, I think so many of us had a reaction of like, gosh, thank goodness that you were there, you know, and how much you did and, and how you changed the course of history by being present, by showing up, by being a proactive bystander and, you know, and taking that video footage, reporting what you see, if you do see misconduct or wrongdoing, you know, to hold our government officials accountable.
0: Yeah one last thing and I'll let you go. It's a slight a slight deviation from this conversation, but it does apply to you know the application of state power, police power, national power. You've done a lot of work in immigration. So maybe you could talk about that statewide a little bit, but then specifically, I wanted to chat with you about the way local law enforcement will sometimes call in border patrol or ICE to act as translators with folks who, who maybe don't speak English or don't speak English well. And it's something that's really happening a lot in more rural spaces in, in Eastern Washington, but then over into Montana. And I haven't heard so much about North Idaho because it's such a small border, but I assume it's happening there as well.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, in, I would say, gosh, in 2018 and 2019 when we were looking at the data, you'd see that the majority of immigration arrests in Washington state were happening because of the facilitation, immigration enforcement was relying on police and rules over 50% of immigration arrests, you know, had that facilitation and had that collaboration with local law enforcement. And so in 2019, the Washington state legislature passed the keep Washington working act, Mm, which prohibited law enforcement from sharing information, from collaborating, from contracting with ice and border patrol to facilitate the federal government's agenda. And part of that is, is sort of a state, state's rights argument, you know, that um, the federal government has their agenda. They have so many resources (laughs) to effectuate their agenda, but instead they often rely on local law enforcement. Law enforcement is volunteering and, and, uh, you know, uh, using their time and their local limited local resources to serve this federal agenda. And so our lawmaker said, no, not only does that put washingtonians at risk but it also is just a waste of resources you know yeah. and in that law it says that um law enforcement cannot use are prohibited from using um border patrol or um ice as interpreters or using those services because that's not what they're intended for right, <laughs> right. Know, yeah Every, every community has, you know, has access to interpreters or language lines, et cetera, right. um, And so that's what they should be using on to serve Washington residents. And so hearing that they are continuing to use Border Patrol, that means that they're violating the law. And yeah. so that's really concerning.
0: When was that law passed to keep Washington working? 2019.
1: Okay, it's been in effect since.
0: So yeah, I've definitely I've definitely heard of cases since then. So yeah, that is troubling. I mean, and, and to your point, it's like I could see the sort of doe-eyed argument being made that it's like, well, you know, we're close to the border, we're a small department, and so we just you know ask our buddies over at the border patrol, they're close, and that you know it's all all in the spirit of trying to help folks, whatever. If you're in a region that is, has a high Latino population, for example, like why couldn't you hire a uh, bilingual officer? Right. Exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and, you know, I think um, it really goes to community trust. And if uh, a local police department is seen as sort of an extension of this federal immigration agenda, you know, it's prioritizing a federal agenda over a local one. And, you know, if, if a subset of the population is being targeted by that, we've seen it across the state that they lose trust in law enforcement and law enforcement relies on community trust in order to do their job. So it's both bad policy and it literally violates our state law.
0: Well, right. And if it really is about keeping people safe, about sort of being, you know, the the, sh- the shepherds or the sheepdogs, whatever that um, language is of, of the community, you would hope that you know, and this, this goes into like sex workers. There's all so many different angles that this goes into, but in this specific case, it's like, even if I'm a documented person, but I know people who aren't, or I have family members who aren't like that would erode my trust in police. If I have a serious need, if I, if I really need to reach out or maybe I know something uh, about uh, something that's been committed, why would I ever come forward? One, if there's a, a danger that like something as trivial as a robbery or something or, or domestic violence, to your point earlier, if I, if there's a concern that like border control might start poking around my lives or the lives of my loved ones or the lives of my coworkers, why, how, why would I ever come forward to do that? There are a lot of conversations happening in journalism right now about extractive reporting uh, and like, we're still small, but like one of the things we've really thought about doing is to the extent possible, if, if we're going to try to report on Latinx communities, We want to have a reporter who can speak Spanish at least. And then that's often not enough because you also, you know, like there are so many indigenous languages spoken. And so it it just strikes me as if law enforcement is going to be for all Washingtonians, they need to take the steps to make comfortable all Washingtonians. Right.
1: That's right. Yeah. it should. um, The department should reflect the population they serve.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a brisk and very informative conversation. Is there anything like else on your mind about any of these topics that you'd like to chat about um, before I let you go? The work you do is super, super important. And we always like to sort of highlight what's happening at the state level over on the east side because we sometimes feel a little distant from it.
1: Yeah, no, well, this has been great. Um, I think we covered a lot of bases on this. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. And
0: and this is, ACLU Washington does, it's a statewide organization. You guys don't have an office in Spokane, but you're in Spokane a decent amount, right?
1: That's right. And I think you've um, spoken to my colleague, Jamie Hawk, who works on a lot of criminal legal system reform, um, in Spokane and, uh, with all the great partners in Spokane who are doing that work every day.
0: If folks feel like there's something that the ACLU should know about in Spokane to do, is it just best to sort of contact y'all directly or, or do you guys have partners in Spokane that, you know, that stuff sort of funnels through or,
1: um, either way you can either contact us directly or, um, we, we work with the SCAR coalition oh, and yeah. peace and uh, Pajals and, and the Spokane Immigrant Rights Coalition and, um, and yeah, a lot of
0: local groups. Awesome. Well, Anoka, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thanks for, thanks for keeping the pressure on this stuff.
1: Thank you so much for lifting up these important issues. Have a good day. All right. Thanks.
0: Thanks again to Anoka Rot for doing the work in the first place, but then also taking the time to come talk to us about it. Uh, incredibly helpful. Especially over here in Eastern Washington, where we we really have just not had that many voices pushing back against the law enforcement narrative. Thanks as always to my man Connor Bacon for help on the ones and twos. We got some more help coming. Couple weeks, start hearing more people thanked at the end of this. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. I'm going to love it. I already do love it. Last thing before I go, didn't do this at the top of the hour. Going to do it here. Not going to be long though. If you like what we're doing here, please support us at rangemedia.co/slash subscribe. We keep all of our content free forever for everyone because we believe that this sort of analysis and these conversations shouldn't be behind paywalls. It shouldn't only be available to people that can afford to pay for them. But that means that if we want to turn this into a sustainable enterprise, we need the people that can afford to pay for them to do so. So if you do, if you love what we're up to, please take a moment, go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe, kick us a few bucks. Appreciate it. All right. That is it for me. Have a good week, everyone. Bye.